Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Average Conservationist podcast brought to you by Outdoor Class and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Outdoor Class is the new single source of premium outdoor education from trusted, knowledgeable experts. For hunters committed to improving their skills, Outdoor Class is the only subscription-based e-learning platform that provides unlimited access to video lessons from the world's most respected experts covering topics across a hunter's entire journey. Learn from industry leaders like Corey Jacobson, Randy Newberg, Remy Warren, and other prominent personalities and organizations. Sign up today and use code AVERAGE to save 20%. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies, breweries, Contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. <clears throat> Today on the podcast, I am joined by Hank Shaw. And for many of you out there, Hank is a he's an outdoorsman, he's a hunter, gatherer, chef, author, uh, a man of many talents. And we uh we get to talk about a ton of really cool stuff. We get to talk about um Hank's introduction to the outdoors growing up on the East Coast, um, when hunting um, was kind of introduced to him uh, at at that point in his life, later on in life, um, you know, how that really changed his outlook um, on cooking uh, and where his his focus, uh, when that shifted uh, to focus primarily on wild game. you know, not only that, we get into, you know, why, <clears throat> why he, he enjoys that part of, of chefing or, or cooking so much, um, you know, what really went into or what goes into, um, you know, writing these books, uh, especially, uh, cookbooks and, and, you know, the things that he's, he's really trying to strive to do and make things as simple and straightforward as possible. Um, because as, as Hank talks about, you know, he knows these techniques and, and ways to prepare food 
to be ways that will come out, you know, with a delicious meal. Um, so he tries not to leave. He tries not to leave anything up for interpretation. He tries to be as straightforward as possible. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, some of the, the mentoring that he, that he's been able to do or that he's been able to be a part of, um, in recent years as well. Uh, it was just, it was one of those conversations that you walk away and I, I just wish we would have had more time to talk. And, and I really look forward to, to getting Hank on again and, and maybe having a, a bit more of a, a focused conversation, if you will, uh, where we can kind of drill down on, on one or two topics and, and really take a deep dive into them because, um, you know, Hank in, in all of his experience, um, you know, in the outdoors, uh, you know, in the culinary world, um, he certainly has uh, a lot of great insight to offer us out there. So episode 131, I believe it is, with Hank Shaw. Uh, today's episode is going to be brought to you by my good friends and the ones who made this introduction to Hank, Go Hunt. Um, if you have not already, you really need to get yourself um, a membership to Go Hunt's mapping system, their Explorer membership. It's a fantastic deal. You're going to get $50. You're going to get all 50 states. And it's really a deal. You're not going to find that anywhere else out there. Um, the, the advantages that the Explorer membership has are incredible. The size maps that you can download offline, um, how you can download different maps and all the layers that you're able to use. It's just, it's, it's a game changer for anyone that's doing a ton of e-scouting, um, or going into, you know, a new piece of property, uh, a new piece of land, the, the benefits, um, are tremendous with this. Um, you know, not only that, now's a great time of year to get the, the outdoorsman, the outdoors woman, um, some new gear for, for the holidays. So be sure and check out their gear shop as well. So head over to gohunt.com, check out their Explorer memberships and poke around the gear shop and find something great for the loved one in your life. All right. Hank Shaw, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Uh, it's finally raining here in Northern California, which is, uh, Everyone runs out and does the rain dance because it's we're in like a the third or fourth year of a nasty drought. So uh, I'm happy to see raindrops on my wind on my windows. Yeah, that's always a good thing. Um, I'm here in Michigan, and it's I mean it's your typical I guess well I guess it's November first now, but your typical November weather where it's cold, it's windy, but there's no snow on the ground. So it's like if it's going to be this cold, if it's going to be, you know, high twenties, low thirties, like at least give me some snow. Let me enjoy it here because this is just, it's not, it's not that fun to be out outside in. No, no, it's not. I've, I used to live in Minnesota and we would get the same things from time to time. And, uh, it's like, uh, yay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, so before we, we kind of dive into things, you said, obviously you guys are getting some rain there. Do you grow a lot of, uh, like fruits and vegetables and do you have like your own garden and stuff that you rely heavily upon? I guess if you're not, not heavily upon the rain, but just, you know, water in general. Yeah. I mean, I, I grow, I have a pretty big garden. Uh, we've got a couple of fruit trees and, and I mean, of course, because it's, it's California. I also have some cactus, uh, cactus fruit is, uh, is it kind of the easiest thing to grow here because it's dry and, <laughs> and cactus don't care. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, we have killed our lawn and I mean, it, it exists when there's rain, but we don't, we don't ever water the, the yard. 
so all we have is like perennial bushes and things that but but the one of the cool things about the the property is that with a few exceptions everything here pays rent so everything that's planted on the property is edible or useful in some way ah, see that's the way to do it right there let 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 your land make money for you yeah, it's not so much money but it's a it's like you know I, there are certain things that i cook with that are esoteric um and the easiest way to get them is to actually grow it so you know a lot of times they're perennial so kinds of sage or kinds of you know like mexican oregano or or rosemary i mean i have a hedge of rosemary because it it never really gets below 27 here and that sort of thing where you can you can create uh an edible landscape that suits how you cook okay yeah those for for someone in your position hank with you know the the cooking and again we'll we'll dive into that as as we go on here but yeah having all of those things that that may be hard to find otherwise um just at your disposal in your own yard i mean that's got to make a a world of difference for preparation for creativity you know for things that you want to try or that you want to do if if you're able to to access those out your back door i mean that's that's a game changer Oh yeah. I mean, in flavor, I mean, a great example is a really great example is parsley, simple parsley. If you, I, I will walk out in my backyard cause I have parsley growing all over the yard. Uh, and I will, I will clip some for a recipe and I'll cut it and I'll put it into a, a dish right at the end of that dish. The parsley flavor is several orders of magnitude stronger when the plant was effectively alive three minutes ago. Then when you buy it, even when it looks nice in the store, it's been cut a week before, probably. So is that, I mean, is parsley one of those, um, one of those plants or one of those ingredients that it just, it loses that flavor over time? Like the longer it sits, the the less bite, I guess it's going to have to it? For sure. I mean, it keeps it pretty well if it's, if it's fresh, but dried parsley is useless. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So... <sighs> I want to kind of start things off here, Hank, and and I don't know how much you get a chance to talk about this on your own podcast or, you know, when you've been guests on on other podcasts and as well, but I want to kind of talk about your introduction to the outdoors. What did that look like for you? Where did it all start? Kind of take me back to the beginning. Well, it really does start at the beginning. So I view my interaction with the outdoors as kind of a three-legged stool, and two of the three legs I have been engaging in since I was born, effectively, uh, fishing and gathering. I, uh, I come from a family with deep roots in Massachusetts. My mom is, uh, was born in Ipswich, which is right next to Gloucester. And I mean, it's a very, it's a fishing centric place. And her uncle, whom she was really close with, was a kind of a well-known naturalist in New England at the time. And, and so he taught her about edible plants and things. And then she in turn taught uh, her children that. So fishing and, and picking berries and beach peas and clamming and all that kind of stuff, that's part of our family's DNA. I mean, this is something that we've been doing forever. And, and so I've kind of carried on like that all the way through my adult life, and all the way until I was about 30. And, and then at which point I was living in Minnesota and a good friend of mine, a guy named Chris Niskanen, we were both working at the same newspaper at the time. He offered to take me hunting and it, it kind of felt right at the time. And I was terrible at it, of course, at the beginning. <laughs> we all are. We, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, I've been doing it for a long time and I still wouldn't consider myself uh, real good at it. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, you get good, you get good over over the years, and it's been twenty years now since I've since I've been hunting. Um, and so it's funny because it's, you know, yeah, I started as an adult, but it was twenty years ago. So I feel in some ways like I've always done it, and until I think back to the, you know, those years, those decades, really, where I didn't, and and my upbringing, it was, you couldn't you. You could get farther from hunting than I did because everybody in, in my neighborhood fished, but I didn't meet another hunter until I was 19 years old and in college. Wow. That's... They just don't exist. So if you've ever seen the TV show, show The Sopranos, sure, that's exactly where I'm from. Okay. All right. That that kind of ties a bow on things. That that makes a bit more sense. right? I, I can draw a much better picture uh, with that. You can, because if you watch that TV show, those guys fish, you right. know, they don't hunt. So what was it about your first experience that kind of got you hooked? You know, when your when your buddy had said, Hey, you know, why don't you come hunting with me? I mean, being in the Midwest in, in Minnesota there, was it whitetail or was it Turkey? What was it? So uh, really the, the thing that got me hunting was it's, <laughs> It's the old crack, it's the old crack dealers gag, you know, the first hits free and then you got to pay for the rest. <laughs> um, so, uh, so Niskanen would give me pheasants and give me ducks and give me some venison. And as a, as a kid, I'm the last of four and there's a pretty big gap between me and my sister. And, uh, so I, my, my mom and my stepdad really like to eat good food. So I was exposed to like high end restaurant food as a child. And part of the experience of a high-end restaurant, at least back then, was game. So fancy Italian places or fancy fancy French or Spanish places would have game. You know, rabbit and venison and duck and quail and squab and that sort of thing. And so from a very early age, I associated game with luxury. And so Niskanen, you know, flash forward 30 years, 20 years, and Niskanen started to give me some game. And I... I immediately gravitated toward classical French recipes. And and then he was like, Well, you should come out and, and get some of your own. And and that was that was exciting. And what was interesting about the actual experience of hunting was that it so mirrored my experience on the water in, in the Atlantic Ocean. So and everybody listening to this knows that an angler is not just a person with a rod and reel in her hand. Uh, a really good fisherman is someone who can read water and read tides and read seasons and understand where structure is or current breaks, uh, you know, presentation, particular baits for a particular time of year. There's a lot to it that besides just reeling in a fish and hunting has exactly that same set of, uh, ancillary skills besides shooting a gun. And I saw that with my friend and I was, kind of amazed by it like I, I it never occurred to me that you could read land the same way that that I could read water and it was a skill that I felt I really needed to have and and you know it's a very difficult skill to get and I still obviously I'm not perfect at it but I'm a lot better than I was yeah and you bring up a really good point there with kind of those 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 ancillary skills as you just mentioned that I think you know speaking from you know one outdoorsman to another it we kind of take for granted, right? That like, if, you know, Hank, if you and I were to just meet on the street and we strike up a conversation and we, we get to talking about hunting or fishing, 
and you're like, oh yeah, I've been, you know, I've been doing it for X amount of years for, for 20 years or something like that. I'm just going to assume that those ancillary things, like you, you're accustomed to them. You, you know, those things, you know what to look for, whether you're on the water, whether you're in the woods. And that is certainly not the case for a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of people who, you know, I think of like, you know, deer hunting in the Midwest sometimes where it's, you know, you're, you're sitting in this, you know, raised box blind on a field edge, you know, an ag field or something like that, or at the time when you could put out bait and, you know, while that person, yes, they are hunting, they're, they're not really hunting, I guess, in the same way that, that I think about it, which I'm not to say one's better or worse because, you know, uh, I'm not here to judge, but there are certain skills that you acquire over a period of time um, that allow you to adapt to, to kind of any situation, whether on the water or in the field, um, to at least increase your chances of being successful, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, just some simple things like if you're hunting things on the ground, you want the wind in your face. If you're hunting birds, you want the wind behind you because birds always land into the wind. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's those those little nuance that, that those little nuances that uh, I think really are what I mean. It's it's this big chess game, right? That we're constantly playing when we're in the field or we're on the water. That I mean, that's really like that the the journey. That's the best part of of whether you're hunting or fishing, whether whatever the case is. I mean, that's that's where the beauty is, in my opinion. I, I one of the things that I've been very fortunate to be able to have done over the last 20 years is hunt and fish in the majority of the continent. So I've hunted, fished, or gathered in, I don't know, 45, 46 states and five Canadian provinces uh, and a little bit of Mexico. So, you know, yes, it'd be the, the being put in different situations like the Minnesota Northwoods for grouse or, you know, the Mexican border for, you know, Chachalacas or, you know, the, you know, the New England coast for sea ducks. You know, there's, there's something special and unique and, and very interesting in the entire United States. And it's just, just the flavors change. Yeah. Have you noticed, I mean, having, you know, had the opportunity to, to hunt and fish and gather in, in, you know, the better part of the continent is how much do you see things change from, uh, I guess like a, a tradition or, uh, yeah, yeah. Traditions are good. The right word, a tradition standpoint. So, you know, whether it's fishing on the East coast, whether it's, you know, um, hunting in Canada, uh, in one of the provinces or hunting out West or in the Midwest here, what, what have you, has been your experience or what do you see as kind of like some major differences between some of those different regions? I think, um, you know, if you look at the big 10 states, the big 10 states are very whitetail centric. And you look at the SEC and the SEC states are very turkey centric. Um, so you've got different animals that, that are at the top of the pecking order. <clears throat> In the Mountain West, it's all elk. Um, you know, and, and then there's places where walleye is king and places where largemouth bass is king. There's places where snapper is king. And, you know, so there are these iconic, charismatic uh, megafauna that that we pursue. Like here in California, it's ducks. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. In California, it's ducks and geese because we have some of the best waterfowl hunting in the United States here. 
So that's the thing that really drives people in the, in the hunting space. And then we're also a very good salmon state. We've got lingcod and rockfish and that, that, that sort of thing. So it's partially determined by what's there. Uh, and it's also partially determined by where it fits into the culture of the particular state or region. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I got to say, I love the, uh, the conference breakdown <clears throat> that you did based on uh, <laughs> on uh, on on wild game because well I'm a Wisconsin graduate so go Badgers and and you know by the way um, the Walmart Wolverines are destined to lose because they suck oh come <laughs> on so I'm not I don't like well I both my brother in laws and my sister in law all graduated from Michigan um, so they're obviously big Michigan fans I don't really have a dog in the fight I mean I tend to root for Michigan just because that's kind of how I grew up. Um, my family was a Michigan fan. So just kind of by, by proxy, I guess I became a Michigan fan and I'm not like a die on the hill, live and breathe Michigan sports in general. But you know, if, if Michigan's playing, like I'm, I'm going to probably watch the game. I'm going to root for them. I'll tell you what, without getting too sidetracked here, I thought we were going to get waxed last week when we went into I Ohio didn't. state. I mean, I, I didn't. didn't even bother to watch the game because I was like, <laughs> I know how this is going to go. I've seen this story play out a dozen times or more. And especially, I think, you know, let me correct myself. I watched the first drive and I watched Ohio State do what they wanted to do, went right down the field and scored. And I was like, yep, I've seen all I needed to see. I know where this is going. And lo and behold, Michigan did what they've been doing all season in the second half, held them to three points and just continued to run the ball. And I was, I was pleasantly surprised. I'll put it that way. Yeah, in all seriousness, they're a good team. I mean, they they do have an actual chance this year, which is which makes me sad. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I do. Some of my favorite players have come out of Wisconsin over the course of the years, though. Growing up, Ron Dane was my guy. I the absolutely. Dane Train. He's a Jersey boy. Yeah, is he? Okay. Yep. Uh... So is Jonathan Taylor, their current best. Uh, I mean, he he plays for Indianapolis now, but uh, but yeah, they're they're they have a this running back connection with New Jersey. Yeah, I mean some of the people that they've that they've pulled that they've put out of there. I mean, Russell Wilson, regardless of what you think about him, you know, played well there. I mean, there's yeah, there's it always seems like I mean Melvin Gordon. I mean, shoot, the list goes on and on. There's always been a ton of of really good uh, backs, especially that have come out of that university. And and linemen. Yeah, well, of course, I think that goes without saying. Big giant farm farm boys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we could probably record another podcast and just talk about college football, which I would be okay with too. <laughs> um, so I want to, we, we talked about the, the upbringing in the outdoors and mostly on the water, getting, you know, taking that, that dive, that plunge into the hunting scene about 20 years ago, you said. So I want to kind of tie it all together here. The culinary side of things. When did when did that all kick off? When did that all start from you? I know you said that you know growing up, you know you, you ate of you were kind of accustomed to, you know, kind of fine dining or or you know better culinary experiences, I guess than than maybe most. So how how did you get involved in cooking? Uh, it's because I uh, it was just me and my mom at one point, and so she was busy, you know, single mom, and you know, she grew up, you know, she's older. And so she grew up in a tradition where, you know, you make your kids breakfast before school, but she kept getting so much more busy and busy and busy. And so it, that the, I'll, I'll be frank, the quality of that breakfast started to decline precipitously. <laughs> so, so at some point like mom, I'll just cook my own breakfast. And then I would, you know, she, I would, I learned how to cook all her standards. And so I started cooking in the house when I was a, in a teenager to just try and help out. 
And then that kind of went through college where I started to work in kitchens uh, in restaurants. And then I eventually became, um, you know, a, a line cook and a sous chef in, in restaurants for a few years. And that really got my my underpinning, the, the training of, of what to do and what not to do in a kitchen. And then after that, I actually became a newspaper reporter. And I was a newspaper reporter for 18 years. And uh, I still, of course, cooked. Uh, and I cooked on the side. I would, you know, big barbecue guy and all that kind of stuff. And then I I left that profession in, I, le- I really left it in 2008, but I left it for good in 2010. And I've been, I've gone back to the kitchen. I've, I've done, I've not owned a restaurant because that's kind of a death sentence. Um, <laughs> it really is. It's like having a dairy, you know, you know, it's, it's, it needs, to, you can't move and it's just, yeah, the margins are small and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. but I've come back to chefing, so to speak, in the last decade, 12 years or so. And it's been, it's been good. Um, it's still a very hard job. Uh, and, you know, catering is hard and, and even doing the pop-ups or it can be, can be hard, but they're really, they're, I, I really, really do enjoy those one-offs because it's effectively the cooking equivalent of being the grandparent. Where, you know, you can come to the house, you can feed the kids candy, everybody loves you, they're running around like madmen, and then you can leave. And then you leave. That's right. That's the best part of being a grandparent. You yeah. don't have to take them home with you, right? So what what was it about the wild game that or what made you decide to, you know, focus on, on that side of, of cooking? Um I didn't at first. Okay. But I had started hunting prior to starting Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. So I started my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, um, in 2007. So when it when it was very new, it was a, kind of a grab bag of all the things that interested me. So it was game, it was fish, it was wild plants, it was wine reviews, it was um, fermenting, it was pickling, it's, it was garden stuff, it was... Uh, things that I would buy at the farmer's market. So, th- I mean, that's why the original URL for it is honest food and not huntgathercook.com, which is what I've changed it to um, because I was kind of finding myself. And and the concept of honest food is still what guides me right now because um, I, you know, while I lead a, a pretty, you know, game and fish and wild plant, you know, you know kind of focused diet mm-hmm. it i mean i still go to the, i mean people are like do you ever go to the supermarket like of course i go to the supermarket um you know do you have what do you eat when you go out to eat i'm like what everybody else eats i'm not a monk uh <laughs> you know so um i i ended up switching pretty much exclusively to game and fish because a I was good at it b there was a niche like at the time i started hunter angler gardener cook in 07 it was like A.D. Livingston for from Gray's uh, Sporting Journal, and then that, that great um, that L.L. Bean cookbook by Angus something or other, um, and that was about it. Like there was really it was a huge gap, and other than Livingston, um, the recipes didn't work. Like the recipes were were chunky and they they weren't written well, and and yeah, having been a journalist for so long. The number one, the prime, well, there's two prime directives in being a journalist. One is to get it as right as you possibly can, given the time allotted. And the other is to be clear. 
you know, verbal, verbal debris is not welcomed in newspaper business because it's just, it adds length. It makes you less clear. And, and so writing clearly is, is extremely important. And I learned that over the years. And, and so, especially with a recipe, I mean, think about, think about what we do, right? Think about, have you ever gotten a, like a, a special tag that you probably will never get again? I have not. I've not been fortunate enough, but I, I, I think I know where you're going with this. So imagine getting a, a bighorn sheep tag. Okay. And you get your bighorn sheep and you butcher your bighorn sheep and you're about to cook the tenderloins of a bighorn sheep and you use one of my recipes. Now, I can tell you as a side note that the tenderloins of a bighorn sheep are just going to be the exact same thing as a tenderloin on like a on like an elk because they're pretty big animals, so like 400 pounds. Um, but it's a tenderloin is a tenderloin is a tenderloin, right? So it's just a question of size. And but the, my point is, if you use my recipe, it's been tested and it works because guess what? You can't if you screw it up, you can't go to the store and buy another bite, you know, you know, bighorn sheep tenderloin. It's just not no. gonna happen. So. <laughs> So the recipes have to be, you know, as airtight as I can make them. And sometimes that, sometimes that means I have to make them over and over again. Um, I've gotten pretty good over the decades, but what I do, so that doesn't happen often, but it has. And, you know, I, it's extremely important for me to create a recipe that what I write is what you read. And if you've ever sent a text message where the person you sent a text message to has misinterpreted what you wrote and a fight has ensued, that's what I'm trying to avoid. Yeah. The leaving room for interpretation, I've got to imagine, especially in the culinary world is the ultimate downfall. Because if you read something the wrong way, or you're just like, well, this is what it says. And I think this is what it means. And then it's not what it means. Then yeah, your whole dish could, you know, be for shit, right? Right. And then you can't, and then unlike regular fishing, you know, fish and meat from the supermarket, you can't just go to the supermarket and just buy another one. Yeah. And I, you were making a good point when you were talking about that and, and making sure that it's, it's airtight. And, you know, I think about, you know, some of the wild game that, that I have, like, you know, the kind of, let's call them like the choice cuts or the prime cuts that, that come off, you know, like a, a whitetail, for example. You know, I will almost save those. I know they're, you know, the ones that everyone sometimes tend to eat first. I'll tend to save those for not necessarily a special occasion, but, you know, maybe some some friends who haven't really tried wild game or, or aren't hunters or anglers are coming over to the house and like, okay, I'll pull this out. I know, how, you know, I, I know how I cook it. it. It usually turns out well. I want them to experience, you know, venison uh, the way... I think it should be enjoyed. So I'm going to wait for, I'm going to wait to use that cut of meat for this particular occasion. I'll either do that or the other thing, and this is kind of blasphemy in the hunting world, but I'm kind of bored with backstraps. Like they're fine. You know, it's a, it's a clean, you know, connected tissue free piece of meat that you can eat rare and it's, it's fine, but I get way more jazz cooking shanks or necks or shoulders. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or awful. Um, one of my great pleasures in life is to make dishes with the fifth quarter, you know, heart, tongue, liver, kidneys, um, you know, even tripe, uh, that not only are good, but will make the person who follows that recipe never leave that in the gut pile again. Yeah. 
I've seen, and I don't know if it's just because I'm paying more attention now in, in, you know, the last decade or so, but, you know, organ meat, you know, hearts, livers, can, you know, things like that, that people are, I don't know why, I, I don't want to say celebrating because I don't think that's the right word, but they're, they're not leaving it in the gut pile. They're putting a, a big emphasis on making sure that that comes home and, you know, just cooking up some, some fantastic meals, um, with these, these parts of, of the animal that, like you said, are, are typically left behind. I mean, to go back to the football analogies that we were talking about before, it's like Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick is able to make great teams out of nothing. And, you know, by, by clever recruiting and picking up people on the waiver wire and whatever, and, and cooking, you know, organ meats is exactly the same thing. If you do it right and you create a dish that everybody likes regardless, like, Devil kidneys is a great example. So if you if you soak the kidneys properly and you cook them properly and you and you make a recipe like that, I can feed that to 20 people and 18 to 19 of them will be like, that's amazing. And the other two just won't be able to get it out of their heads. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine Bill Belichick as a hunter is one that's yeah, he's packing absolutely everything out of the woods with him. <laughs> right. He's not like, probably having somebody else do it. But. Well, yeah, but he's got he's got a master plan in the back of his mind for when he uh, he gets that thing on the counter or in the in the frying pan or the the oven or whatever the case is. So as you kind of started down this path of of really focusing on game meat, where did the cookbooks come in? What, you know, what does that process look like? So I started the website. So Hunter Angler Garden Cook starts in 2007. Right. Um, and in 2009, I got my first nomination for a James Beard Award. And if you're not familiar with the James Beard Awards, they're effectively the Oscars for the food world. It's, it's among the highest awards you can win in the culinary scene. So I got nominated for that. And, and to, again, it's like the Oscars where to be nominated, you're, you're like one of three. So, right. so you're automatically on the podium um, and you just, you know, you're a gold, silver, or bronze. So that happened and I didn't win. But then it happened again in 2010. Um, I got nominated two years in a row and I didn't win either time. And, but what that did is it, it, is it opened up um, an enormous amount of, People, people noticed people like this guy is doing something interesting. Um, I found out during that year in 2010 that, that, that chefs all over the country were reading the website and, and enjoying it. I mean, there were people that I, that are, that are very well-known people that, you know, on food TV who have come up to me and be like, I love your website. And I'll be like, I've seen you on every TV show there is. And it's just kind of, <laughs> it's kind of this weird moment where like, we're, both of us are geeking out over each other and it's, it's kind of odd and weird and fun. Um, but that's when I got a book deal. So I got a book deal in 2010 to write my first cookbook, which is hunt, gather, cook. And that is a cookbook that is, um, effectively what I was writing about, uh, on, on the website at the time. Okay. So you never know if you're going to get a second book. So I wrote hunt, gather, cook as kind of a primer on all things wild. It's not a guidebook. It's, it's not a cookbook. It's, it's kind of everything it's, but it's primarily a book to pick up and read. If you are interested in getting into hunting or getting into fishing or getting into foraging. And, and so the, what was, what was made it successful is that hunters would pick it up and learn things about fishing and gathering gatherers would pick it up and learn things about hunting and fishing. 
and so on and so forth. So what it did was really stoke people who read it to become better, more complete gatherers of wild food. And it's I'm very proud to say that it is still in print, which is very unusual to have a book in print for, tw- you know, 12 years like that. So that was the first one. And because that one did well, uh, I got an offer to write uh, another cookbook with Random House called Duck, Duck, Goose. And that one is, uh, as you might imagine, it's a cookbook entirely for ducks and geese and you know waterfowl in general Mm -hmm. so that came out in 2013 and then um i my next book was going to be a venison cookbook but the random house um decided that they they didn't want to sell it they didn't they said they didn't know how to sell a venison book they weren't sure it was going to sell ha 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 um and and so i started a kickstarter i started my own publishing company and we did a kickstarter and we raised a, a enough money to publish Buck Buck Moose. And that book has been very successful. Um, and that's gone through, I think, 11 printings since it came out in 2016. Oh, wow. And and so that has allowed me to write Pheasant Quail Cottontail, which is all about Upland Game. And then my most recent book, which just came out last year, is Hook, Line, and Supper. And Hook, Line, and Supper is, is all about fish and seafood. And, and for me, while from the hunting aspect, pheasant quail cottontail is the one that's closest to my heart because I really truly love upland hunting. Um, it's the, I know the most about the subject in hook, line and supper. And it's the book that has the most kind of autobiographical material in it because I've been doing things with the, with fish and seafood, you know, since I was a toddler. Yeah. I was going to, I was just going to ask you that is that probably had to be the one that, that kind of hit closest to home for you just based on, your upbringing, uh, your early experiences, uh, and everything like that did, was that one easier to write or were you harder, harder? Harder. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because it's, it's harder in the sense that when you have damn near 50 years of experience on a topic that you care deeply about, and you've been in, in working, you sort of interacting with that subject for, for your entire life, Every statement that you can make will have a caveat. You know, this is true. Ah, yeah, but there's these three other fish over there that don't, this doesn't work for. <laughs> you know, if when you do this to 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 shell a crab, this will happen. Eh, except for that species of crab over there. You know, and so it's there's so many examples of um, where this is mostly true, but not always. I, but I think the greatest revelation that I had with hook line and supper was that having cooked and caught and eaten well over 300 species of fish and seafood um i can i can tell you that with very few exceptions you can mix and match fish so the idea of a walleye recipe or a snapper recipe or a rockfish recipe is flawed because it really is a whitefish recipe. It really is a recipe. And if you want to get a finer point to it, it really is a, a whitefish recipe for a fish with fine flake or a whitefish recipe for a thin filet. And there are 50 fish species that fit into those buckets where people get all hung up on, oh, it's walleye or, oh, it's you know black sea bass or whatever. And that's just, a, it's, a, it's not a very smart, 
or a, a useful way to think about cooking fish and seafood when what's more useful is what did I catch? What is the nature of the fish? And then how best to cook that? Yeah. So from a speaking, you know, sticking with kind of the seafood, how much does it play into, you know, your preparation of a specific um, species of fish? Like, you know, depending upon, you know, its habitat, right? Or, you know, like what that fish is eating, what its kind of diet is, how much do do things like that kind of play into, you know, what you're doing, um, you know, when it comes to preparing that, that fish? I mean, on a daily basis, it doesn't, but, um, I can tell you that, that those things do affect fishing game quite sometimes dramatically. I mean, a great example is, uh, would be, let's just take a mallard, for example, in terms of where diet really, really matters. So mallards will eat anything. I've seen mallards eating dead salmon. Um, but mallards can also eat lots of grain and corn and barley and peanuts and, and and so a mallard's flavor and fat level can range from you know horrific to sublime so fish get that to some extent um much less so in freshwater than in salt although it does happen so you know what the fish is eating can have effects around the edges but a good example is um Let's say Great Lake salmon, for example, because okay. you're probably familiar with Great Lake salmon. Sure. Their diet is almost entirely fish. So, um, by contrast, early season Pacific salmon in California and Oregon are eating krill, so like a micro shrimp. And the color, fat level, and flavor of those krill eating salmon are a million times better than anything that will come out of the Great Lakes. Like it's, it's barely even the same fish. So that's an example of really dramatic differences. Whereas, you know, the other thing about the, what the diet of a Great Lake salmon is, is it makes the, the salmon itself a bit fishier because they like to eat oily fish. Right. And that's going to translate into the fish itself. And so it's not, it's not an insurmountable problem, but it's something that you know that, if you caught, say, this is why people like sockeye so much, is because sockeye are only uh, crustacean eaters, which is why they're so red. Um, and so they're always going to be mild. They're always going to be flavorful with like that rich, almost shellfishy fat. Whereas you're not going to see that with uh, a coho in Lake Michigan. Yeah. Learn something new every day. It's good to know. So, over, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, Hank, in terms of, you know, cooking wild game and stuff. What has been your, I guess, your favorite wild game to cook? Um, and what's been the favorite dish, your favorite dish that you've made, one that you just kind of come back to over and over? It's really hard. I mean, I, uh, I, uh, we hunt and fish so many different things. I mean, Holly's a big duck hunter. I, I hunt ducks too. Um, so we have a lot of waterfowl. And it's kind of hard to beat a really fat pintail. Um, I mean, a really fat canvas back beats it, but they're much rarer. So a really fat duck, um, that's pretty special because that's effectively a steak wearing a hat made of bacon. <laughs> I've not heard it described like that, but I like it. And it's, it's, just, it's one of the great things in the world. Um, 
so that's that's up there. Uh, I mean, I think blue grouse, roughed and blue grouse, um, plucked, of course, are really, really one of the signature things to eat in North America. Um, that skin with the fat underneath it gives them their unique flavor that makes them very, very special. And it is, it's a little funky, but it's funky in a way that makes you want to hunt more of them. Whereas when you skin those animals, uh, the meat is, is much more plain and it's fine, but it's not distinctive. Um, I, I, the chachalacas down in South Texas are, are unbelievable animals as well. Uh, so there's, you know, there's a lot of like odd examples. Um, I am kind of liking, like we, I did this outdoor class thing last summer and it's a video course that does, um, that teaches you how to cook and prepare venison. And because we did it in the summer, we didn't really have access to every bit of venison that we, that we wanted. So what we did was we got the opportunity to butcher a bison. And the coolest thing about that bison that we used in the video course is, well, a, we got to keep some, <laughs> but, uh, but bison fat is, is like beef fat because they're bovids and not cervids. And so like bison, musk ox, nilgai, oryx, cows, they're all bovids. So their fat is a shorter chain fatty acid than the fat that exists in all cervage, which would be your, your, all your deer, your elk, your moose, uh, caribou, they're all cervids. So their fat is going to be waxy and it will coat your mouth as it cools. And so this is a, so the myth is that venison fat tastes bad and that's not actually true. What is true is that as venison fat cools, it coats your mouth in an unpleasant way. So what people say is taste is really mouthfeel. So, um, so the the fact of that that we use this bison really got me a, a chance to work with a lot of of grass fed, effectively wild beef fat, and that was amazing. And so the the presence of that usable fat is very much like um, hunting hogs or hunting fat ducks. In that, that I'm really attracted to you know harvesting and using wild fats because they fat is the is the citadel of flavor all character and flavor in any animal that you eat whether it's fish or game or birds uh exists within the skin and the fat because the the lean muscle tissue tends to have a very similar flavor it it's it differences exist in lean muscle tissue for sure but they really exist in the fat so the as a cook Working with delicious wild fats, some are and some aren't, but working with delicious wild fats is probably the thing I like the most. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought up the, the outdoor class thing because that's where I wanted to, to go next. So for you, you kind of touched on it there, but for those listening, outdoor classes, um, it's like a e or it's like a online e-learning platform for the outdoors, which is. Yeah, it's, it's like masterclass. If you've ever heard of masterclass, yeah, it's it's really from the outdoor space perspective. It's the first of its kind, and uh, it's they've got uh, with yours coming out now, Hank. That that's four different courses that they have out there, four different series. So, and they did... have, I think, three that are coming out like immediately. And then I'm actually, I just, I just found out this week that I'm recording. I'm re I'm going to do another class, and uh, 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna do a second course. Um, we're gonna we're gonna record in in March, and it's gonna be about fish and seafood. Oh, nice! Right on. Yeah, because I know uh, Jamie Tegan or Tegan, yep. excuse me. She did the first one um, with using. How was she? I think she was just using mo- or elk. Excuse me, elk. Yeah, yeah. So, how did that whole project kind of come about for you, Hank? So I'm I'm pretty good friends with Randy Newberg, who also has uh, two courses uh, with the outdoor class, one on pronghorn and one on uh, I believe public land elk hunting. Yeah, it could be that's rifle a, elk hunting. That sounds right. Yeah, rifle elk. And and so and I also know Remy Warren, and Remy Warren's another person who has a, a course on the in the in the system. So Randy's like, you should get involved with this because I've always you know I don't have a TV show and. Um, the joke is that I have a face for radio and, (laughs) and I just, it just has never worked out for whatever reason. And, but I've always been interested in video content that helped me do what I do, which is to, I mean, the main, main reason I exist at all in terms of being a public, public person is to help people use their wild, wild foods better, whether it's fish or game or whatever. And, and so I'm not really interested in going on naked and afraid or, or, you know, bear grills or something like that. I'm much more interested in something where I can help through video, help people use their game better. And so Randy's like, this is the thing you need to do. And I was like, well, oh really? And then he explained who runs it. And so all of the people who are doing the filming are either very, very uh experienced in the in outdoor video space like tvs programs and such or in in this for me was the kicker they're they're from hollywood like like the the editors and the the cameramen they've done actual real movies and so um that professionalism the level of production values was so much better than anything that i had experienced before that I was, I was kind of blown away, and and the finished product is very, very, it's very polished. It's it's easy to watch. Um, you know, it looks good. It sounds good. There's no, <laughs> and you know, there's, it's just, it's really, really well done. And each each course is about 13 units, and the units can range from like two minutes to 14 or 15 minutes. It depends on how long, how long the kind of the you know, the story is, and I, I get to create the course. And so the first one is venison one one It was kind of like, okay, here's your, you know, here's your, your overview of dealing with elk or, or deer or whatever. And it's a little bit of a breakdown. So the, the course assumes that, you know, sort of the rough things about breakdown, but I go through some, some, a bit of finer points, um, of you know how to get certain cuts out of an animal and then the bulk of the course is all very it's it's cooking basics it's how to make stock how to how to really get the most out of your grind how to really do you know build a, a really really good stew no matter what you're using it doesn't have to be venisons and so on and so forth so the the goal is to, so that once you finish watching it that you you're a better cook with your with the deer or your elk or pronghorn or whatever it is that you're bringing home. Yeah, how much has that uh, like the the teaching aspect? How much has that played a role? Like, I guess throughout kind of the the maturation of of your cooking and, and your culinary experience, is it one of those things that as you got further along and you felt more comfortable in your abilities and the dishes you were putting out that you really wanted to try to to teach that to to maybe you know young chefs or 
or you know just the average joe who who really likes to cook his wild game it's always been there i mean it's kind okay. of why i started the website uh, but the thing that i've you know i'm i'm in my 50s now and the difference between me now and me in my 30s is that um there's a bit less chest thumping and look at me um there's a bit more you know, I want like there's a I do certain things when I cook duck breasts that are mine. Like I I as far as I know, I invented them. I've never seen anybody else anywhere professionally or not professionally cook duck breasts exactly the way I do. But now I see it. And now I don't even care if I get credit or not because I know that it's from me. And and I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine with that because that's that's something positive I've created. I've created that has gone into the greater you know Borg knowledge base of a, the that we that we do, and that's useful. And and being useful is is the prime directive. Yeah. No, I, I could not agree more. And I think that in a lot of things, whatever your kind of passion is, you know, whatever it is that you love to do, whether it's your work, whether it's a hobby, um, you get to that point in that journey where just like you said, it becomes less about kind of thumping the chest, look at me, and more about wanting to share that experience with others and having other people be able to kind of get that same, you know, whether it's harvesting your first animal, that same, you know, euphoric kind of thrill from from that. I mean, and all the emotions that come with that. I mean, you only get your, your first catch or your first kill one time. And mm-hmm. to be able to share that experience with someone else or give them or pass along knowledge or information to help them get to that point. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's really what it's all about when it comes to the outdoors. It's funny. You mentioned that I just wrote about that. Um, I run a, I run a kind of another website called to the bone with, with my partner, Holly Heiser. And we, that's the spot that's to the bone is this, it's a sub stack. So it's a, it's kind of an essay website and that's where we write about all the things we want to write about that are not recipes. And I just wrote about, cause I, I helped a, a woman, uh, get her first year and, and just seeing that was just, it's one of those things where like, you know, it's, it's not the first time that's happened, but it's the most recent and it's really, it, that stays with you and both, and Holly is a tremendous mentor of new hunters, especially women. And, you know, she, she actually wrote a whole essay about how like the, the kind of the adrenaline rush you get from helping someone be successful is worth the price of admission. Yeah. And I almost think that it's from a, you know, selfishly a personal standpoint, it's almost more rewarding, right. Than than your first harvest or your first catch, because I don't know, I guess as, as I get older myself, like there's just something that I really enjoy about seeing other people succeed and having, you know, that surrounding yourself with, with good people, um, who are like-minded and seeing them succeed in something that they're just trying that maybe they were apprehensive to, to try to start with. I mean, that's, it's, it's a feeling that you can't put into words. Oh, I can. It's a dopamine rush. (laughs) (laughs) Plain and simple. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And it's just, it's a, you know, like I shot the biggest buck of my life at this on the same trip and yeah, I'm happy, but I was, I didn't get nervous. I weirdly didn't get nervous seeing the deer. I'm like, Oh, that's a big deer. Let's shoot it. Um, and <laughs> just like that. Yeah, pretty much. And <laughs> you know, because I, I, I'm not a, uh, I don't know how to judge deer. So I'm like, yeah, that's a big one. Let's get that one. And, and so it turns out to be the biggest buck of my life. Well, that was on day one. And then 
I hunted with this woman on day two and we didn't get one, but she was, she was, she was ready. You know, she was ready. So, um, when I had to do a lot of butchering work on day three, she was out, she was out with another guide and I had all like, I was way more nervous because I, w- I really wanted her to get her deer. And I was nervous that maybe, uh, God, I hope she didn't shoot one and, and, and wounded and they couldn't find it and all the, you know, all of the things. But then she came back and she, she got it and everybody was happy and it was like, it's a great, perfect, happy ending. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. Hank, before I let you get out of here, just a few more things for you. Sure. So from, uh, I don't know if we'll, we'll say creativity, how is it that you kind of stay motivated or like, what are your influences, I guess, for creating new dishes and just, you know, again, staying, staying creative in, in the process of, you know, using, you know, various, you know, wild game meats or wild fish. I think the two main sources are uh, new animals, uh, well, three, new animals, new environments, and new cuisines. So if there's a new animal that I haven't hunted before or, or one that I haven't hunted in a long time, it gives me an opportunity to be creative because, you know, maybe I want to treat um, you know, a pronghorn differently than I want to treat a caribou, for example. Um, being in the environments of that hunt because all of the cultural and natural differences of, say, hunting in Oklahoma versus hunting in Alaska versus hunting in, in Maine, those are going to reflect on on the dishes that I create. And then finally, it's it's a question of cuisines where, you know, human beings spend a lot of time making good food all over the world. And you can spend a lifetime with certain cuisines, like Mexican, for example. You can spend a lifetime and still not really, really, really get it all. And so there's a constant revelatory process of, dude, that recipe is so (laughs) cool. And I can totally do that with ground venison. Like one of the, um, one of them. So a friend of mine named Patty Hinich, she's a great Mexican chef and she's got lots of cookbooks. Well, she introduced me to this dish called pacholas, and pacholas uh, are they're kind of a central Mexican deal. Imagine the smashedest smash burger you've ever heard of, and it's like it's almost like a, a finely ground meat tortilla. It's so it's so flat, okay, and, and it is cooked crispy, and you serve salsa on it, and it's amazing, and it and it works perfectly, perfectly with with finely ground venison. So I, I I looked at her recipe, I talked with her, I looked at other recipes. I mean, I can read Spanish, so I read a lot of recipes in Spanish, um, you know, and just researched the hell out of the dish, and then adapted it to work with ground venison, and it and it came out great. So we put it on the website. So that sort of thing happens a lot. You know, like, um, I'm a, I'm just today I'm going to make a very, very, I'm of Scottish descent. And so I'm going to make this extremely Scottish dish called, uh, mincemeat pies, which are these little pies that you make with, uh, the, with ground meat, ground, you know, dried berries, spices, and, and either brandy or scotch. And you let that filling sit in the fridge for weeks so that it kind of becomes, this different thing. And then you put that in a, in a little pastry pie, like a, almost a, it's like a tiny little pilot uh, and you bake them and they're amazing. And so 
of course that works with venison and wild berries too. So you get this great kind of synergy of the things that I do with this very traditional dish. And, and that kind of stuff I suspect will last me until, until the day I die. Yeah. Yeah. Putting, putting all those different ingredients together, letting them kind of get to know each other, let them become acclimated and then, and then cooking them. I mean, that's, that's a way to, to get the most flavor and the best profile out of, out of all those different ingredients, I would imagine. Doesn't hurt. (laughs) Well, Hank, where can people, um, you know, find you find, uh, you know, the different content you, you know, the books that you've put out, where can people find all that? Sure. There's a lot. So, um, uh, the core of what I do is the website and that's Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. And the, the easiest way to get to that is huntgathercook.com. Um, I have a podcast called hunt gather talk that's available wherever you find podcasts. The new season will be starting up in January. I have, uh, five cookbooks and you can either buy them on my website. And if you do that, a, you help me and not giant corporations and B, uh, you get a signed book, which is, that's the only place you can get a signed book. Of course, if you want it like today, you can get on an Amazon cause like no one can beat Amazon on shipping. Yeah. Um, I, we, like I mentioned the to the bone website, which is that's, that's, you know, it's, it's essays, it's stories, it's hunting stories and, and, and big thoughts about hunting ethics and that kind of thing. But, um, the easiest way to find me and to interact with me on a daily basis is Instagram, um, where I'm hunt gather cook. So Instagram is, uh, kind of the last social media I, I like quite a lot and I'm on it fairly frequently. And I try to post regularly there and I, uh, I'm there to answer your questions either there or on Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. And also your recent video series on outdoor yes. class. Yeah. The Can't video series on outdoor class is that is kind of the new, like it's, that takes the place of a book this year. So like, that's the thing that I've got. Um, and one of the coolest things about if you do sign up with outdoor class, uh, if you use uh, my name as a coupon code, if you use Hank um, uh, as a coupon code, you can get a signed book. And if you use Shaw, my last name, S-H-A-W, as a coupon code, you get 20% off. So um, you gotta pick there's, you a, there's your advantage. Yeah. Well, Hank Shaw, thank you a ton for, for joining me today to, to talk cooking, your background, outdoor class, all that good stuff. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed it. For those listening, be sure to go out pick up one of Hank's books, follow along. He does a ton of great stuff, ton of great content, and it's going to make you better in the kitchen. So it's a win all the way around. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. All right. Take care, Hank. All right. Well, thank you again, Hank, for joining me today. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Uh, I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Hard Side Hydration, Stone Glacier, Go Hunt, Outdoor Class, And of course, 2% for conservation. Uh, Do me a favor, guys. Be sure to go out and support the brands that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, And if you are interested in learning more about 2% for conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you're going to see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where they're going to post only positive conservation-driven content in your feeds. So you'll certainly enjoy that. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks again for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, Be sure and check out theaveragekonservationist.com. Grab yourself some uh, gear 
for loved ones in your life for the holidays and uh, help support conservation in the process. So until next week, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you. Yeah.